This is episode 167 with one of the leading science journalists in the endurance world, a former national class runner for Canada, and author of the incredible book Endure, Mr. Alex Hutchinson. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fitzgerald, and if you love running and want to improve, if you have big goals and want the resources and inspiration to achieve them, then you're in the right place. On this podcast, you'll hear from the thought leaders in the running industry, the coaches, the psychologists, dietitians, therapists, and authors who make fast running possible. While you have to do the work, my goal is to show you the most strategic ways to work smarter and more productively so you can take your running to the next level. Because if you better understand running, if you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll make better decisions about your training, leading to more effective running, fewer injuries, and faster races. Don't miss our other 166 episodes of the podcast, our video channel at youtube.com slash strengthrunning, or our home base, strengthrunning.com. Here you'll find all of our different coaching and training programs that help you prevent injuries, run faster, build mental skills like self-efficacy, or become a stronger, more powerful athlete. This episode is supported by our longtime partner, Inside Tracker, the ultra personalized nutrition platform. They analyze your blood and DNA biomarkers, along with your lifestyle habits, to help you optimize your diet, lifestyle, and exercise in order to reach more of your goals. They're now offering their best deal of the year with $200 off the ultimate plan, their most comprehensive package. Use code GIFT from Strength Run at InsideTracker.com. And I should note that as I'm recording this, I am only a couple hours after my own blood draw from Inside Tracker, and I can't wait to share the results with you guys soon. Now, my guest today is a juggernaut in the world of endurance. In fact, he's literally written the book. Author of Endure, Mr. Alex Hutchinson is here to talk to us about tapering. Alex holds a PhD in physics from Cambridge, a master's in journalism from Columbia, and is a former national class runner in Canada. He's written for Runner's World, Outside Magazine, The Globe and Mail, Popular Mechanics, and most other major media. You'll probably recognize his regular sweat science column on Outside Magazine's website, where he dissects current studies on exercise physiology so us laypeople can better understand how the latest science impacts our running. And if you'd like to hear more from Alex, don't miss episode 61 of the Strength Running Podcast, where we talk about the limits of human endurance. It's the topic of his book titled Endure, and if you're in love with running as much as I am, you should definitely pick this up. Today, we're doing a deep dive on the topic of tapering. The taper is an inexact science. At its most basic, it's a reduction in training leading up to an important race so that you feel more rested and able to run faster. In this episode, Alex and I are talking about the length of tapers, how you should think about reducing both mileage and intensity, modifying the frequency of your running, and whether or not that's a good idea, the impact of other exercise during your taper on your performance, whether the taper crazies are a real thing, and a lot more. I hope you get a lot of value from Alex's knowledge, but if you have any questions for me, don't hesitate to email me at support at strengthrunning.com. Now, without further delay, Please enjoy my conversation with Alex Hutchinson. Alex, welcome back to the podcast. 
Thanks, Jason. It's great to be back. So we we haven't talked in a little while. I, I think the last time that we spoke might have been in person. It's hard to think of meeting anyone in person these days, but <laughs> the uh, the book event that you had in Denver with Christy Ashwanden. Yeah, yeah, it does feel like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? Uh, for 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 many many reasons, but uh, yeah, you know, it's it's been a while. And I'm excited to chat with you today. We're going deep on the whole idea of tapering. Um, so. I think you're such a great person to talk to about this, both with your experience as a national class runner in Canada, with your work, uh, looking at so many exercise science studies and really enmeshed in the science of endurance. Uh, You pretty much wrote the book on it. So (laughs) let's get started. I should also note that all of the questions here today were... um, originated from the strength running community. So all these questions are from uh, different folks on different social media platforms. So I just want to thank all of uh, our listeners for submitting some of these questions. So Alex, let's start super simple. How do you define tapering? Ooh, that's uh, yeah, the simpler questions are always the the, the hardest ones to answer. I, I mean, I guess uh, the basic thing is it's just a reduction in your normal training, doing less than you would normally do because you've got some sort of event coming up that you want to be at your best. So it's doing less to achieve more. Very simple. Also, I think very uh, intuitive to any runner who's followed a formal training plan. Usually the last couple weeks of the plan will have a reduction in their total workload. So the mileage might decrease, the intensity might either decrease or stay the same depending upon, you know, the, the type of training plan and the goals. But that's generally, I think, what a taper is. Um, is a taper something that every runner should be doing leading up to the goal race? I guess what I'm asking is, is it necessary? Is this like an absolute, uh, needed element of training that runners have to have? Yeah. Any, any time that you, you start saying a hundred percent of people, then we're, then I get my, uh, my hedging language out. Um, I think it's highly recommended for everyone. But there are certainly examples of of uh, very very successful runners who who don't really subscribe to that. I mean, I remember, oh gosh, ten twelve years ago when Josh McDougall won the NCAA uh, cross country championships, the U.S. College Cross Country Championships, um, beating Galen Rupp, I think, uh, if I remember correctly. It was everyone was noticing or commenting on the fact that in an interview he he mentioned that oh yeah I, I ran a hundred miles this week. Um, so now he was used to running more than a hundred miles, but he essentially didn't taper. He had found that when he tapered, it just left him feeling, you know, mentally not great and his legs weren't feeling great. He was used to running a lot. And so for him, he found that a minimal, maybe zero or maybe just a sort of very minimal taper worked best for him. So there's a ton of individual variation, which we will, I'm sure get into, uh, over the next, over the coming minutes. But, um, in general, if you, if you pressed me for a general answer, I'd say, uh, a taper is is as as close to universally recommended as as anything is uh, on this planet. <laughs> right, that's a good point to bring up. And uh, it does a uh, does a taper depend on the race distance? You know, if you're training for a hundred mile ultra marathon, how how might you think about the taper compared with someone who might be training to race a fifteen hundred meter track race? Yeah, it's interesting. There's some research. There's a guy named, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm not going to pronounce his name correctly, but Inigo Mujica, who's uh, from the Basque region of Spain. And I apologize to all the Basque people out there if, if for butchering the name. 
but he's probably the world's leading expert in tapering research. And so he's done a lot of studies himself, but also uh, meta-analysis of, of the, the sort of summarizing the whole literature on, of studies on tapering. And his take is actually that the taper is the taper. I mean, the, the every you know whether you're a hundred meter sprinter or an ultra marathoner, you're you're following basically the same precepts in terms of how you reduce your training. Now, the thing is, uh, you know, if you're a tiddlywinks player, you, your training is very different than if you're uh, an ultra marathoner or a, you know a fifteen hundred meter runner, as you said. So where you start from is going to dictate what your taper looks like. Um, probably a more relevant thing than what event you run is what type of training you do relative to that event. So people who do really, really heavy training may need uh, a deeper taper, uh, may need to, to, to cut down farther than if you're training really lightly. Like if you're, let's say you're someone who is going to run a local 5k or a local 10k. And so you've taken up running, you run two to three times a week. Um, and you're getting fit and you're ready for tanking. You don't need to do a huge taper because your training load is so is so light. So it's not that the fact that you're running a 10K or a 5K, it's the fact that you're training at, at the very low end of what it's going to take to get through that um, so you don't have a ton of accumulated fatigue. So that, sorry, that's a bit of a waffling answer, but basically it's less about the event than about the type of training you're doing, I think. Well, I, I don't think that's a waffling answer. I think it's really great to know because I think, uh, you know, the the tapering that I did when I was training for the 1500 was substantial because, you know, I was still running, you know, more than 80 miles a week. And, you know, I was generally fatigued fairly uh, at a fairly high level, most uh, peak training weeks. And so, you know, I, I think that was certainly necessary. Uh, and then in my coaching life, I have lots of conversations with runners who, uh, I don't think are carrying around such high levels of fatigue for even longer races, like let's say the half marathon. So their type taper might not necessarily need to be as substantial. Um, now, is there an ideal length of taper or does that again depend on the contours of the training? Because you're going to have to cut that training down a certain amount. And if it's really high, then, you know, maybe you need a longer taper. Whereas if it's, you know, you're not training super hard, maybe you need a shorter taper. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think the, the sort of general envelope that people deal with is, is usually about one to three weeks. Uh, and, and, and two weeks might be, um, you know, for a, for a year long or a season, season ending goal, a, a two week taper is probably pretty typical or, or, but it, it, it kind of depends on how you define the taper. Cause let's say you're talking about a marathon. Um, you're not going to start reducing your training four weeks out for the most part, but you are going to, you get to three weeks out, you're not going to do maybe, are you going to be much more cautious about doing really big, long depleting hero sessions? Um, the, the kind of thing you might do a couple times a season. So it's not necessarily a taper, but you start being conscious of not wanting to trash your legs and dig yourself a deep hole, even as far as let's say four weeks out, I would say, but you don't start necessarily reducing your volume until closer. Yeah, that's such a great point. And, and it, it's one of those subjective things that is really hard to, to nail down or give people some real clear guidance on because, you know, you could, you could structure a taper and then within that taper, include workouts that would leave you completely unrested and sore for your goal race, even though on paper, it looks like, you know, the, the mileage is decreasing, maybe the intensity is staying the same. 
uh, I think that's a really good point that some of those uh, really tough workouts, maybe the, the really long workouts. And when I'm thinking about marathon training or maybe ultra marathon training, you know, some of those over distance long runs where runners might go up to 22 miles or for the ultra distances, you know, maybe they're running a 30 or even 40 mile long run uh, a couple times during the season. Now it's good to give yourself a lot of recovery after those things. And so even if, you know, you're four weeks out, like you said, that's probably not the best kind of a workout to do, even though, uh, you know, you're not starting your taper back then. I think that's a, that's a great point. And this aspect of tapering that we don't normally think about. Yeah. And, and let me jump in and, and, and just share some, some, some of my sort of personal impressions that I picked up over the course of my running career. Like you, I was a 1500 meter runner. And what I've realized over time is that the workouts that really trashed me were, uh, short speed workouts. And those are the kinds of things that give you a lot of confidence. If you're trying to run 1500 meters running like really fast 400s with long rest. And it, you look at it on paper and it's just like, wow, that workout was only, you know, six times 400. That's a quarter as much as you were doing a month ago. But in practice, if you, if you let yourself really, uh, you know, un uncork on these workouts, cause with tapering, all of a sudden you're, t you're, you're a little less fatigued. You're taking more rest. You're doing less volume you have the potential to really hammer some of these workouts. And so that was a real, uh, I think I, I left some really good races in the, in, you know, in the garbage can, uh, by, by hammering speed workout too close, even though it wasn't, uh, high volume. And then conversely, when I tried to, when I moved up to 5,000 meters, I started to do longer workouts. And I found that we would do this one workout every couple of weeks, which was like a 16 mile progression run where we'd start at a comfortable pace and, and get a little bit faster every mile until, you know, for the last four or five miles, we'd be going at a, at a very good clip. And I felt like that really had a huge improve, caused a huge improvement in my fitness for endurance, but it would take me, it took me a long time to realize that it was taking me four or five days to recover from those, those runs. Uh, and that I was in a hole for almost a week. So you, you, you start to figure, figure out which of the workouts that really leave you in a hole that, that you have trouble recovering from. And you really have to watch those in the taper period, because like you were saying before, it's, it's easy to go overboard. It's easy. You, you know, you're, you're, you're under less overall stress. And so it's possible, it's more possible for you to actually go and, and dig a deep hole. Whereas in the, during the course of regular training, you're, you're so tired all the time sometimes that you can't, no one workout can, can push you over the edge. Yeah. I think a helpful way of thinking about this is that, you know, if you're say, two, maybe three weeks out from the race, there's a lot of things you can do to make yourself more tired and to carry extra fatigue and unnecessary soreness into the race. Uh, there's a lot of things you can do to basically screw up your training at that point. You know, they say the haze in the barn. Uh, and really what that means is, you know, all the work that you've done to improve your fitness and to get into this, you know, great shape that you're in, uh, you know, it takes a while for that to be realized for you to adapt to all the hard work that that you've done in the past. And if you do a hard workout two weeks before the race, you may not be 100% recovered and adapted to that workout that you've just done. So I think it's helpful to know in those final couple of weeks, you know, even though you're probably feeling great, let's not run the workouts really any faster than we have to, you know, presumably we're running them at pre you know, specific paces, maybe it's your goal pace, maybe it's a little bit faster than that. Uh, but hammering those workouts and, and also understanding what specific workouts make you more fatigued and sore afterwards, uh, I think is, is really helpful. And, and part of that is just 
getting to know yourself as a runner and and doing a variety of workouts so that you know, okay, I get really sore from long runs, but the fast short stuff doesn't necessarily make me too sore. Um, and is that just experience, Alex, or we just kind of have to go out there and put in the reps to understand our bodies and how they respond to things? I think, I think that's definitely part of it. Cause the, the yeah, the truth is uh, everyone is different and, and the workouts that I just described that would leave me, uh, sort of on the floor, it was not the same for some of the people I trained with. And that's what sort of led me down the, the, the garden path is, is that it worked for other people. Whereas for me, the sort of, let's say six by 800 meters or thousand meter reps, those sorts, which, which might be, which are sort of classic VO2 max reps that some people find very exhausting. Those are, are, I just find those suit me well and I don't feel tired after them. So I think there is some trial and error. That being said, there, there, I mean, there are some sort of general principles that, like I was saying before, like there's lots of individuality, right? Everyone's got to figure out what works for them, but you kind of want to know what the the default position is and you experiment from there. You know, we're at, everyone doesn't have to reinvent the wheel. So the the sort of in broad strokes, you can think of how do you taper? Well, you're going to reduce the amount you're running. You, you could reduce the amount you're running, the how hard you're running, the intensity, and how frequently you run. And the the general kind of uh, conclusions that come from studies that have tried to look at this is that the best thing to do is to reduce the amount you run, how far you run, but maintain the intensity and frequency. So you're not going to if you're running six days a week. And you start tapering. That doesn't mean you start running three days a week, uh, and and it also doesn't mean you only start jogging and skip your workouts. You're going to keep your you know two or three workouts a week, whatever it is, two workouts a week. You're going to keep running six days a week, but each run is going to get shorter. And what that means for your for your workouts, let's say your interval workouts, is let's say you were used to doing ten by four hundred, then maybe two weeks out you're going to do eight by four hundred, and in the last week you're going to do six by four hundred. But uh, crucially, the intensity is staying the same, and that means. You're fit enough. You could do 10 by 400 at that pace. Heck, you could probably do 12 by 400, but you're going to do six and then you're going to stop knowing that they're left in the bank rather than saying, oh, I'm only doing six by 400. That means I can go faster because I don't have to do as many. Right. That's important too, because you're, <laughs> you don't want to make yourself so sore leading into that race. And, uh, I, I think it's helpful too, that, you know, if you're two weeks out from the race, we're really maintaining your fitness level and doing a shorter workout that leaves you feeling kind of refreshed knowing that you could do a bunch more repetitions at the same pace and it still would be manageable for you. Um, I, I think that's a confidence builder and it's enough to keep you sharp without layering on so much additional fatigue. Now, I'm glad you brought up the issue of frequency too, because I was going to ask you, you know, should we maintain the frequency of our running? Because from, from my perspective, you know, I, I'm actually unaware of any science that says which approach is better, but from my coaching experience and my personal experience as a runner, I feel like, you know, just what you said, reducing the amount that you're running, but maintaining the frequency. So just kind of making your runs shorter instead of just cutting out several runs during the week is just really great for that. Just getting into that rhythm of training. And if you go from running six days a week to three days a week, you are, are yanking yourself out of the normal rhythm of training that you're in. And that might leave you feeling a little off, not quite as coordinated. You know, you don't feel the, the same pop in your step. So uh, that that's interesting that you brought that up. Is there is there any science to back that up? I think there's a little bit of science. I wouldn't lean too heavily on the science, but what you're bringing up is I think actually 
maybe the most, if not the most important point of all, at least uh, an equally important part to the sort of the details of the training and the physiology is the psychological side of feeling ready to race. And this is where things get really complicated and really individual because you were saying, you know, if you do, if you finish that work, that last workout, knowing you could do more reps, that's a good confidence booster. And I think, I think that is for some people, I think it's the opposite for other people. They're like, oh no, I didn't work hard enough. I, oh, oh no, I, I left some pot and people, and, and it's the same thing with what you're saying about getting yanked out of your rhythm. If you go, if you start taking a bunch of days off, it's like, you start feeling guilty. You start feeling worried. Every, the rest of the world is gaining on you or you're, you're leaving. So I think maybe the hardest part of the taper is getting to the line, feeling like you've done the right things and, and not driving yourself nuts in the last few days, worrying about what you may not be doing. Now, I think there's, there's two things you can think about to approach that. One is to, to, you know, listen to what you're saying, listen to what I'm saying, listen to what all the coaches and great athletes of the world have been saying, which is that the, the taper works. You have to trust it. You have to feel, you have to convince yourself that, yeah, resting is, resting is the smartest thing you can do right now. And, and it's not about on the Wednesday before your race going and showing the world how, what kind of amazing fitness you have. But parallel to that, there's also, I think it's okay to, um, to listen to the voices in your head a little bit and, and find what works best for you. And if that means, you know, uh, you know, getting in one last semi hard workout, maybe a little bit harder than what the textbooks might suggest a week before, cause it just gives you that confidence you need. That's maybe that's okay. Even if physiologically it's not optimal. And conversely, I mean, I know for me, there were times at least in, in my career where I felt like a day of complete rest, even when I would normally have not done it. That gave me a cycle because I, I I was a big believer in recovery, uh, you, you know, at the time. So for me, even though I might there might have been some benefits to shaking my legs out, I actually felt like having a one full day of complete rest helped me feel confident that I was fully rested and ready to race. So everyone's going to be different, and that's why we get there's actually there, there's even uh, a sort of subculture of of kind of I won't call them taper denialists, but there, there's some people <laughs> who do a sort of reverse taper right at the end. Instead of taking the last two days before the race easiest, they might do like three or four days before the race, they do their easiest races. And then the day before, they like to do an even a mini workout with some strides and, and stuff. And I don't know about the physiology of that, but to them, it's it's putting them in the right headspace. So that's that's where things get, I think, really messy, but it's important to kind of respect the importance of 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 getting in the right headspace because really that's important when you step to the start line. Absolutely. And and it's interesting I think when you talked about you taking an entire day off from running where maybe physiologically you might have benefited a little bit more from say a short shakeout run, but you know, I I'm, I'm sure that kind of goes back to your point of the harder your training, the deeper your taper must be. And for someone who is training as hard as you, you were likely running every day. You probably had days where maybe you even ran twice a day. And taking a day off during a season when you're not kind of formally taking some time off, say after a, a big goal race, I'm sure psychologically that felt like a vacation that you, you were treating yourself. It was almost like a day at the spa for someone who was training so hard. And uh, that I think is, is a big psychological boost. Whereas if someone is only running three days a week, they take a a day off, you know, that, that may be, 
you know, a reduction of a third of their training for the week. Whereas <laughs> yeah, for someone who's running, <laughs> right. For someone who's running nine times a week, you know, you're actually, you know, removing just a small amount of training from the week, even though it feels like so much more an entire day of no running. My goodness, this is, this is a vacation. This is amazing. Uh, so I think that psychological side of things is, is really powerful. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it's the hardest one to give advice about and this is where you have to, you know, work with your coach and, and if your coach work with your athletes to try and figure out what, what, what is it that's pushing your buttons and what, what is it that's going to work best for you? And in the end, for me, that the sort of what I converged on is I, I decided I liked taking a complete day of rest two days before my most important race of the year. And then the day before I would do maybe a 20 to 25 minute run and a few strides, which at, for me at the time was, was extremely light. So I had two really easy days, but there is the kind of that, that risk sometimes the day after a complete day of rest, if you're used to running every day, you're late, you start running the next day and it's like, Oh, I've, my legs, I've forgotten how to run. So that way I wasn't having the rest day right before the race, but two days before. And, and that's not to say that this is the recipe for success. It's to say that through a lot of experimentation, that's what I found kind of balanced, getting me physically to the line rested, but also mentally, uh, comfortable and confident. Yeah. And it's funny because I found that exact pattern for myself as well, because if I took the day off, but right before a race, I would feel a little bit less coordinated. I wouldn't have that same, uh, pop in my stride. I wouldn't feel as responsive. Whereas if I took two days off before I felt like he's very similar to, you know, the age old wisdom of the, uh, night of rest two nights before your big event is the most important. And I feel like that was, is kind of similar. I'm, I'm getting a big boost on recovery that day, but I'm also prioritizing how I feel, you know, during the, the day of the race itself. Um, now, Alex, should we be thinking about tapering our strength training as well during this, you know, kind of one to three week window as we lead into a goal race? Cause a, a lot of folks had this question as well. Yeah. I, I, I I think the answer is yes, personally. And I think that there's a little bit of, I don't think there's a lot of explicit research on this, but yeah, I mean, and again, it depends on, you know, what kind of strength training you're doing, but, and, and, and how used to you do it you are. But I, I would certainly be cautious about doing any strength training in the week of a race, unless it's like something that you've been doing every day for the last 10 years. And it's just, you know, like breathing to you. Um, and ultimately the question I would ask is what, what, what are you hoping to achieve with, with the, with that particular workout? Um, because if you're, if you're doing squats on the Tuesday before a race, that's not helping your race. Um, and, and so, you know, and this gets into a either tapering is sort of one subset of the broader question of periodization, right? So you, 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 if, if you're like me, where, where you know, a skinny guy who not, doesn't focus on weight training, but thinks it's important, I, I do pretty similar uh, strength routines year round. But if you're really trying to help your strength, have your strength training complement your running, you might have going through phases where you're doing heavier weights or phases where you're doing more explosive weights. And the competition phase, when you get into the, those last weeks before, uh, I think would be absolutely minimal, uh, you know, at most just some maintenance. You, you, so I, I definitely think you should taper. Although, um, again, it's not something where there's a ton of objective data to, to, to rely on. 
Right. And, and a couple of years ago, I partnered with a USA weightlifting national coach to develop a weightlifting program for runners. And uh, it was interesting to see how he programmed, you know, a, a kind of a full season of weightlifting for runners because it's periodized to fit, you know, a 16 week training plan for running as well. So, you know, you kind of just mesh the two together and you have your running and your strength all laid out for you. And you're exactly right. The strength training is periodized. There's essentially a base phase of training. Then it gets into more, uh, more heavier weightlifting, more, um, explosive movements. There's also some plyometrics. And then at the end of the program, you know, the week of your race, you're doing, you know, it's almost like doing short, quick reps on the track, uh, except you're in the weight room. You're doing, uh, not necessarily super heavy lifts. You're not doing a high volume of lift, but you are doing some explosive movement just to fine tune the central nervous system and get you feeling more responsive. And this kind of goes back to, you know, feeling that pop in your legs, feeling a little bit like you have some bounce in your stride, maybe by increasing some muscle tension. So, you know, I, I asked you that question with the full knowledge that, you know, we offer a periodized strength training program for runners. Um, and so I, I think, you know, when you think about the type of weightlifting that runners are doing, um, if you are in the gym and you're kind of lifting in this very methodical, uh, strategic way, then, then I think the periodization of the weightlifting can look very similar to the running itself. But on the flip side of that, if you're not in the gym, if you're just doing some body weight exercises at home, you're doing core workouts, push-ups, things like that, you know, then uh, I would reduce that a little bit the week of the race. But I also don't think that that kind of strength training is going to leave you super sore or tired for the race. I think a lot of that stuff is therapeutic. It's almost like what you would do in a physical therapist's office. Yeah, and, and that makes a lot of sense. And and it's, certainly, if you've got a periodized program, then then the tapering just kind of falls naturally out of the periodization. That's that's that's. I mean, that's a part of the periodization. But like you said, in terms of maintaining, uh, you know, one pretty good sniff test is how do you feel the next day after your strength training? And if you're at a stage where it leaves you sore the next day, or you're a little bit kind of stiff the the day after your strength training sessions, that that's the kind of thing you want to avoid. If you if you're at a stage where you're comfortable and you wake up the next day after your workout and it's no no big deal no different then that's that's unlikely to, to you know I don't think you want to do it the day before the race but uh, yeah you, 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 so so just like we were talking about with different kinds of running workouts I think you want to pay attention to how to to what the after effects of any given workout are and use that as a guide as as, as to whether that's something you need to be cautious about as you approach a race. And I always think how when we're talking about things like this, it's always the subjective feelings that are actually the most accurate. You know, we're not going to use a chart <laughs> where we're not going to have like some formula for runners to follow for a taper, whether that's for their running or their strength training. But if you're just not feeling fresh, if you're not feeling rested, then something needs to be adjusted. And I always think it's funny how the most subjective things that we we can't nail down are often the ones that give us the most valuable information as to how we're feeling. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and obviously to communicate to a large number of people, you have to give them a framework to start with, but always with the understanding that uh, when if there's a conflict between how you feel and what the chart says, how you feel is probably a more reliable barometer of whether you're, uh, you know, whether you're overdoing it or 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 whatever the case may be. A hundred percent.
Now, Alex, someone asked uh, if any other activities uh, like cross-training or other forms of exercise would be appropriate during the taper, like let's say a long walk. And I, I kind of have a feeling of, of how you might answer this, but I'm just curious, you know, for, for the runners who, who might do other forms of exercise, uh, how should they think about that when they're in this taper phase? I'll answer that with an anecdote from my first year of serious running um, I, in high school. Uh, and I'd been training all winter and we had the provincial indoor track championships. And it meant that for the first time since the beginning of the winter, I didn't have any workouts scheduled on the Wednesday or Thursday or Friday after school. And I was like, awesome. I can go play, pick up ice hockey with my with my buddies. So I went and played a couple hours of hockey on Wednesday night and a couple hours of hockey on Thursday night because I, I just had easy runs instead of track workouts. I could barely walk on Friday. And then we drove like six hours to get to the championship meet on Saturday. You know, this, it was a big deal, this this event. And I had to confess to my coach that I could barely walk. And he's like, oh man, Alex, I, I thought you were smart. Like, what, what were you thinking? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so, and I ran like crap. <laughs> so <laughs> that was an early lesson for me. Now, and actually there was a really funny article in the Wall Street Journal um, this, uh, just a month or two ago during the Tour de France, interviewing a bunch of Tour de France cyclists about what they do during the tour or any point. And, and all these cyclists were saying, you know, they're, they're, they're detailing all the efforts that the Tour de France teams go through to prevent the cyclists from having to walk anywhere. It's like, it was almost at the point where they're like carrying them on their shoulders to get to their hotel rooms. It was like, no, you never leave your hotel room. You just get up, you order the food in, you just lie in your bed. Now, most <laughs> of us are not, uh, you know, exerting ourselves at the level of Tour de France, you know, six hours every day for three weeks. That's a, that's a special case. But I would say, um, yeah, if, if you're training for a big race, then you're a, you know, you're a finely honed piece of machinery and that's great. Um, but that doesn't mean that if you, you can go play squash on the Thursday night, in fact, it probably means you're less, <laughs> uh, ready to go do something completely different, even going for a nice long walk. Now I would definitely suggest getting out, you know, during that, those taper days, getting outside for a walk and getting some fresh air and not just sort of sitting, staring at the wall. But, um, you, you know, it's not, probably not the day for a two hour walk, uh, or for going shopping for the whole day, being on your feet. Um, it sounds a little bit, I don't know, maybe it's, that's a little bit overprotective and it depends on the, you know, how serious you are about the, the goal. But, uh, yeah, if you, if you use muscles in your, in a way that you're not used to, um, it's not going to kill you, but it, it may leave them tired. Now, there's a slightly different quest, case if you're, if you have a, a regular, if you cross train on a regular basis. Like, let's say you have a Friday night pickup basketball game that you play, you're less likely to have problems if it's something you do every week. But personally, I still wouldn't play my Friday night game of basketball uh, if I had a race on Sunday morning that I cared about. For sure, yeah, I'm always I. I'm the kind of person who is a little bit overprotective of my races, especially you know, the longer they are, you know, the longer they are, the more you've invested into it. And you can't just jump back from a poor marathon and run another marathon the next weekend. So uh, when there are races where you're putting most of your eggs in that basket, then I think it makes more sense to prioritize your performance and not do anything in say the week leading up to the race that would just leave you unnecessarily fatigued. And, and I go as far as to tell my athletes, look, if you're going to a big marathon and you're picking up your number at the, the race expo the day before, 
I know it's going to be very tempting for you to spend three hours, you know, it's like every distance runner's nirvana, you know, there's all the, the exhibitors and you have cool new shoes to look at and all the different fueling options. Maybe they have like a form analysis. It's very easy for runners to spend hours and hours in a big marathon expo, just taking in the sights and sounds and walking all around. And then the next day they realized, oh, wow, my legs just feel so heavy because I wasn't used to just being on my feet for four hours at a stretch walking around in a big marathon expo. So there's a lot of things like that, that that example isn't even formal exercise. It's not even a walk, but you're just kind of going through your life. Uh, And I always try to just reduce or eliminate those other kinds of activities. And for a lot of my adult clients right now, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll tell me, you know, I I know my workout wasn't that great uh, on Wednesday. And that's because on Tuesday night, I did three hours of yard work. And there's a lot of examples like that. And so I think we should be honest with ourselves and look at our schedules the week before the race and just think about, okay, what activities might make me a little bit more tired than I have to be, and maybe cut those out or just reduce them enough. You know, if you're getting ready for a Saturday race, Maybe it's not the best idea to go for an hour long walk on Thursday evening, but a 20 minute walk probably is just fine. And so I think there's some flexibility there to do a little bit of the things that runners want to do. Yeah, I think that, you know, these are, these are great points and it sort of makes me think of another related topic that's maybe anticipating something, which this idea you go to, you've got your big marathon, you go maybe you're traveling with your family to another city where the, the marathon's going to be. If you walk around sightseeing, that's a bad idea. But there's also, uh, I, I think there's something to be said for a mental taper too. It's not just don't walk around. It's if you can, if you can make space for it, I think it's useful to give yourself a mental break, not to think of like, Hey, I'm racing on Sunday. That means I don't have a workout on Saturday. That means I'm going to do my taxes on Saturday. And I'm going to spend all day going through receipts and getting super frustrated or whatever. Um, you know, that this is a bit of a separate topic, the, the, the impact of mental fatigue on physical performance, but I think it's something that has, over the last 10 years, if there's one thing that has changed in the last 10 years in sport, it's a growing recognition, um, recognition of the impact that your mental state that, and, and particularly mental fatigue can have. So I really think exactly what you said, look at your, your schedule the week leading up to the marathon and don't, and don't just look at it in the context of, of, uh, you know, are you going to be raking leaves for four hours? But also, um, are there things that are going to be stressing you out? Even like travel, and we don't always have control, but I would far rather travel on a Friday evening, even if I'm going to be up a little bit late, than travel on a Saturday if it means I'm going to spend the day before the race changing planes, traveling through airports, standing in customs lines and stuff like that. But I just want to relax the day before a race and make sure that my mind has, you know, is fully charged. I'm so glad you brought this up. The mental taper, I think, uh, is is so incredibly important. And one of the things that uh, I've learned from you, I learned uh, at your book talk with Christy, uh, is that stress is stress. And if you're really stressed out from non-physical things, then that non-physical stress will impact your physical abilities in a race. And I experienced this in such a profound way when I was in college because, you know, there's one Saturday I remember during uh, the cross country season where I had to miss the morning practice. It was a week when we didn't have a race because I was taking the LSAT exam. And, you know, this is an exam if you want to go to law school. I had very 
strong delusions about myself being a lawyer back <laughs> in in 2005. But, uh, you know, it's like a three, four hour standardized test. Uh, it's fairly stressful. Uh, you know, you really have to be on your game mentally. And after the test, I went and I did a 6K tempo run on the track. And I was a mental basket case for that workout. It did not go well. I was looking at my watch too much. I mean, every kind of uh, mental pitfall that I could fall into uh, happened. And it's just a great example of, you know, I, I was physically fresh, but I was mentally fried and I had a terrible workout because of that. I think that's a, a, an experience that a lot of I've definitely had analogous experiences. Let me let me just throw one other kind of curveball into the mix, which is related to that. And that is that, okay, we want to avoid overstress, you know, stress and mental fatigue and all this stuff. There is a point, particularly for some of us, some some of some of us runners are tend to be, you know, details focused, obsessive people. There is a point where worrying about all these details, about trying to get everything right, about not being too mentally stressed, can become a form of stress in itself. And I, I will again stick up my hand and say this is something that I've I've experienced. And and the, the particular experience I remember is the very first time I made a national team, it was for a, a meet in Italy and in, in, in Sicily. And we had on my, my race, the 1500 was at the end of the, the meet. So it was, it was a week long championships. So I had something like seven days in a resort in Sicily before I had to race my qualifying heat. And I was so obsessed with, you know, this was my big break, my first national team. I, I really didn't want to screw it up that I basically spent seven days sitting in my hotel room, staring at the wall, you know, not wanting to move. And, you know, I was rooming with like, you know, I think there were five of us staying in that one room. And by the end they were like, God, Alex, you're, you're making all of us nervous. Can you just, you know, unclench a little bit? Um, but I couldn't, I didn't, I didn't run very well at that meet. And I think part of it was that I was, uh, I was just, I was so stressed about trying to get all the details right and making everything perfect. So all the stuff we've been talking about, I think is important and it's important to bear that in mind. But I think it's also important to remember that um, ultimately you can control what you can control. And very rarely does everything go perfectly in the course of a taper. You're going to have some runs that don't feel good. You're going to have some stressful situations. Your flight's going to be delayed, whatever the case may be. It's no big deal. And if anything, if you, stressing about it is just going to make things worse. So you've also got to be able to know when to just, um, you know, let the details go and, and, and accept that not everything's going to be perfect. Now, how did that race go for you, Alex? Terribly. <laughs> ter <laughs> oh, ter no. Terribly. It was, it was, uh, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it was, let's, let's say medium. It was, it was not good, not bad. And, 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 and no one thing is ever going to, dictate a race. And that's the important thing to remember. You you try and do everything right. But at the end of the day, I've definitely had experiences where things have gone wrong. And sometimes it's it's one of those those counterintuitive experiences where it's like, you know, you're held up in traffic, you're, you're, you're late for the race, you don't even get to do your warm up. All of a sudden there's zero expectations. You're like, this is a waste. You don't worry about it. And you have a way better race than you than you expect you would. And to me, it's a reminder that we try and control all the details because they do matter. But ultimately, you know, you, you, as long as you get to the line and you still have two legs and you're ready to, to to run, you go out and do your best once the race starts. And you have to put all that stuff behind you once the gun fires. You've done what you could do and you no longer worry about it. 
Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, as we're talking about this and the many things that can go wrong during the taper and and you just trying to over-optimize everything during that taper, you know, a lot of runners experience the taper crazies. And some runners even feel worse during the taper. Uh, some runners have mentioned getting, you know, the taper cold. You know, everyone ever seems to be getting a cold when they start reducing their workload and, you know, their mileage and their intensity of their training. So, you know, what's going on there with the psychological side of things? Is Are runners feeling worse, particularly... Yeah, are they feeling worse during the taper only because of our, our, the physical side of things, or is there a strong mental component to it as well? Yeah, I, d- I definitely think that there's a there's a, a sort of phenomenon of hyper awareness. I, I know for for me that uh, I would often, you know, in the couple of days leading up to a race, you know, every time I went up a flight of stairs, I'd be like, "How do my legs feel? Am I bouncing up these stairs?" No, I'm not. Oh my God, my legs feel like crap. Why do they feel like crap? I've been tapering. I should be feeling fresh by now. And so you start to become super, super hyper aware of of how you're feeling. And I think the same, I've definitely had the taper cold before and usually it disappears as soon as the race is over. And usually what, what it is, is I become, it's like, you know, you wake up in the morning, your throat's a little bit dry and you're like, <coughs> do I have a cold? <coughs> it's like my, you know, my my six-year-old these days, yeah, yeah, she's every morning. She's like, I think I have a runny nose. I think I should stay home from school. And it's like, no, you don't have a runny nose. It's just you're 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 looking for it, and so you can always you can kind of find evidence that maybe you have a cold, maybe you have a pulled muscle, maybe you have this. And so, look, it's not the thing. Real real things can go wrong during the taper, but I think it's the, the there's definitely a phenomenon of hyper awareness because we're suddenly very concerned about how we feel. And so we're every, every little twinge becomes magnified. Right. And, and I think too, it's, it's both a combination of you being a little bit more rested. So you're more aware, you know, you're, you're kind of just like thinking about how you feel constantly. But I remember just from my own personal experience that, uh, when I'm in heavy training, when I'm running the high mileage and I'm doing the workouts and the long runs, you know, I'm almost in this cocoon of fatigue where I feel tired, but I don't feel every tiny little thing in my body because the the overarching feeling, the the dominant feeling is fatigue and a general soreness. Whereas when I'm tapering, that cocoon of fatigue has lifted. And now I'm like, well, now my Achilles feels a little off. And, you know, like I, I just don't feel like my hip uh, on the right side is as loose as my left. And you start overanalyzing everything. So I think for any runner who's in hard training, you have to expect that you are going to start to feel differently when you taper. And if you're used to training really hard all the time, you know, being rested, <laughs> being not pretty fatigued most of the time is a new feeling and that can throw you off a little bit. But knowing that that's part of the process, I think is valuable. Yeah, that, that makes absolute sense. And I, I do think, yeah, you, 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 when you're feeling like crap all the time, you don't notice any particular piece of crap. It's, and then when you start feeling good, (laughs) it's like, oh yeah, now I'm noticing the individual pieces of crap. (laughs) That's a good way to put it. (laughs) Um, Alex, how should a runner modify their taper? Uh, let's say if, if their training was impacted by an injury or, you know, they missed workouts. Um, so in other words, like, should there be less of a taper? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) this races are for the most part, they're the kind of exam you cannot cram for. (laughs) Um, so, uh, you know, you don't get to say, well, I, I missed a workout in, in week 13 and, you know, 
I missed a work another workout, you know, 10 weeks ago. So I'm going to do four workouts in the last week to, to cram them all in. Now, again, there, you know, there are, it's, it's a balance, right? There's definitely situations where you're playing catch up. You're not as fit as you'd like to be. And you decide that pushing your fitness a little farther, maybe outweighs the freshness. Um, and there was an example, uh, was it CJ Albertson or I think who, the guy who just set the world record for 50 K, I think he was saying he wasn't all that fit, but then in his, in his last two weeks before the, the race, he ran like 130 miles a week or something like that. So there are stories like that. Personally, my feeling would be, um, you, you don't get to, it's, it's not a benefit to try and cram in missed workouts at the end, except to the extent of what you were saying earlier, that the, the depth of your taper depends on the, the, you know, the height of your training. And so if you, if you don't have as much training in your legs, you probably don't need to taper quite as much because you're not, because you missed some training, you're, you're, you know, you only have eight weeks of, of high mileage instead of 12 or whatever. So you can maybe back off your taper a little bit, but you can't just sort of uh, decide that recovery doesn't matter because you're a little less fit than you'd like to be. At some point, you, you know, you miss the training. It's okay. You, everyone misses training. It's part of the part of the game. Part of the game. Now, Alex, I was also going to ask you about lifestyle issues, uh, sleep, nutrition, and stress. Now, we've already talked about stress, so I want to talk about nutrition and sleep. Uh, I did get a question asking if uh, runners should reduce their calories during a taper because they're not running as much. Uh, so I want your take on that. And also, you know, your thoughts on sleep. Should should we, <laughs> I'm laughing even before I ask you this, should we reduce our sleep because we're not running as much or should we sleep more? <laughs> um, okay, let's take sleep first. My policy on sleep is if my body will stay asleep, I take the sleep and I do everything in my power to give my body an opportunity to sleep. Um, you know, if, if I could stay asleep for nine hours every night, I, I would. Um, and that goes doubly for, uh, taper week. So I, I wouldn't reduce sleep in, in any way. I would, I wouldn't, I would be cautious about thinking, I don't want to say like increase your sleep because then you get in the situation of people going to bed at 7 PM and lying there saying, why can't I sleep? Oh my God, I'm screwing up my race because I can't sleep. Um, you know, you, you can only sleep what your body will let you sleep. And that will be dictated in part by the habits of sleep hygiene and the habits of when you get to bed that you've established over a long period of time. You can't, uh, you know, two days or five days or whatever before a race decide, okay, now I'm going to become a good sleeper. So these are habits you need to establish over the course of a long period of time. And I would definitely, I wouldn't consciously, um, I definitely wouldn't reduce my sleep. Um, if I can increase my sleep, if you know, because I don't have to get up and do my workout at 6am, it, it allows me to set my alarm a little later and get an extra hour of sleep or an extra half hour of sleep. Absolutely. I would do it. There's except in extreme outlier situations. I don't think there's really much of a thing as too much sleep. If you're getting too much sleep, you'll wake up and you know, that's that. I don't know. Does that make sense? You want to pause and talk about sleep before we move on to, to uh, nutrition? No, that, that jives with, with kind of what I think and, and what I think is a reasonable approach for most runners. Uh, you know, I, me personally, I think the the more sleep, the better. But like you said, let's just not try to go to bed so early that you're never going to fall asleep because then, you know, you're, you're kind of injecting more stress into your week unnecessarily. And like we talked about before, you know, there's, there, there's no, there's no need for that kind of, uh, you know, dramatic change in, in your sleep schedule. Um, but yeah, let's, let's talk about nutrition, calorie reduction, or, or maybe eating more. So you're fueled. Like, how do we think about that? Yeah. Yeah. So 
Let me give two versions of the answer. If we were all, you know, I don't know, robots, or, or if we had infinite knowledge of exactly what was passing through our lips and how our bodies were burning calories, then I would say, absolutely, if you're training less, you should eat a bit less. And, uh, you know, and that's a general principle of sports nutrition that your, your, your caloric supply should sort of mimic the demands. And so when you're in heavy training, you should be eating more. If you're in light training, you should be eating less. Now I can say for myself in reality, I don't count every calorie that I eat. And if I did, I would have zero confidence that I could count it accurately enough to reduce it by the number of calories fewer that I'm burning by running 40 minutes instead of an hour or whatever the case may be. I mean, these are hard calculations to make and, and, and it's hard to be precise about it. And personally, I would be cautious about underfueling yourself, especially because the one thing that I would say is if we're talking about a marathon, um, then I think you need to increase the, at least my belief is that carbohydrate loading is important. And the most effective form of carbohydrate loading is for about 48 hours before the race for the last two days to um, eat a ton more carbohydrates than you normally do. And, or, and in, in perhaps even, you know, suck down a bottle or two of sports drink just because it's hard to eat as many calories as you can benefit from, at least in, in my reading of the literature. So I would, so what I would say is eat what you normally do, eat when you're hungry and stop eating when you're not hungry. And then particularly on the Friday and Saturday before a Sunday race, make an effort to eat high, high carb meals and, uh, and maybe add some, some other forms of easily, uh, stomached carbohydrate like sports drink. Um, all subject to the caveat that different people have different stomach sensitivities and things that react to them. And uh, of course, some people have completely different dietary plans. They may be on a, um, you know, on, on a low carb diet or whatever. So there's, there's different approaches, but I would say don't try and, uh, micromanage your, your calories leading up the race. Um, and, but do try and get more carbs if you're going to carb load, which I think is a good idea. Yeah, I think the potential pitfalls of eating too little far outweigh the the potential, you know, benefits of reducing your calorie count by by a certain amount. Um especially with the longer races. You know, the longer the race, I think the more important it is to be properly fueled. You know, we could probably get away with inadequate carbohydrate stores if we're racing the 800 meters. Um, you know, we're going to be done in just a couple minutes. Whereas if you're going to be done with a race in a couple hours, you know, any kind of under fueling situation is really going to negative impact, uh, that, that race. So I think those drawbacks are so profound that I probably wouldn't recommend any runner to, to really think about effectively dieting the week before the race. Uh, I think that's, uh, almost a recipe for uh, a lackluster performance. And just uh, to go a little more, farther, on the, just to, to add, you're, you know, you're saying it, the, the fueling matters in the longer races. In the shorter races, the fueling may not be quite as important, but neither is the weight factor because efficiency, if you're running a, you know, a, a mile or something like that, it doesn't matter if you're half a pound heavier. So either way you slice it, there's no benefit to, to starving yourself in the week of a race. Yes. Great point. Now, Alex, I just have one more question for you. Uh, wrapping up this deep dive into tapering. Um, when you have a 
training schedule that has multiple races. So there's the goal race at the end, but there might be two or three tune-up races earlier in the season. Um, are, are you going to taper for all of those races? Are you only going to taper for the end race? Or is there some sort of hybrid approach that you think works a little bit better? Yeah, th- you know, this gets really into uh, a many variable problem where you're where you're factoring in you know, how many races there are, there are, and what their relative importance is, and and so on. Um, I would only do a full taper once a season, um, but I would do mini tapers for, um, for other races in the, in the order of their you know descending order of their importance to me and how how well, how well I wanted to race. And so a mini taper might just be the day before the race. I'm gonna. Uh, you know, jog lightly instead of doing a regular run. Or it might be that I, let's say it's a Saturday race and it's not super important to me, but I, you know, it's a mid-season race, but I want to see what I can do then. And if I normally work out Tuesdays and Thursdays, I might move to Monday and Wednesday. So I get an extra two days or an extra day of recovery before the Saturday race, or I might go Tuesday and Thursday, but make the Thursday just kind of a half workout and Friday relatively easy before a Saturday race. So Really, I wouldn't change my vol. My I would I would try not to let my weekly volume be affected much. Maybe except with the exception of like the one easy day before the race, um, until until the final taper. But I would try and reorganize my week so that the easiest day or and as is easiest day or two are right before the race, and that I don't I'm not trying to do a hard workout. Um, you know, within 48 hours of that race. So that's the kind of, and I wouldn't, you can't do that forever. If you're going to race eight times a season, sometimes you just got to show up in, in mid training form because uh, you, you, you can't just keep, keep tapering. Uh, you know, otherwise you haven't really built, built what you're, what you're trying to build. For sure. And, and I think it's, it's important to recognize too, that some of those early season races, you know, if they're tier three races or, you know, if you classify them as ABC goals, you know, if it's a C race or, or a tier three race, if it's eight weeks out from your goal race, you know, that race to me doesn't seem super important. You know, maybe the first race of the season, that's your rust buster. That's just you getting some race experience, seeing where your fitness is at. Uh, but we don't have to taper too substantially for something like that, because like you said, you can't be tapering for so many races throughout the season. And, uh, I think at a certain level, you know, those early season races are, are almost used as kind of like workouts where, no, we're not going to rest before it. You're just going to run it like you would any other workout during the season where, of course, you don't taper for a workout. Uh, you go into it with a certain amount of fatigue. You do your best and, you know, you just move forward. And uh, a schedule where, you know, you're treating some of those early races kind of like workouts in that you're not really tapering for them. That can then evolve into that kind of hybrid mini taper that you were talking about that I think is really great, uh, particularly for, you know, the classic situation of the runner who's running a half marathon tune up, you know, maybe a month before their marathon. That I think is the great situation where, you know, a mini taper might work really well. And that could include one workout during the week instead of two, maybe a slight reduction in mileage in the, the, the Wednesday through Friday or just the Thursday through Friday before uh, maybe a Saturday race. So there's ways to kind of engineer some additional recovery and rest into the schedule without necessarily calling it a full taper or, you know, negatively impacting your fitness level or your training moving forward. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. That's it's like more about rearranging the deck chairs in in the week leading up to a, 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 an intermediate race like that than it is about taking stuff away. 
Yeah, absolutely. So Alex, it seems like, you know, a big theme from our conversation right now has been, number one, there's no perfect way to taper. And even if there was, you're not going to be able to execute it, uh, execute on that perfectly because after all, things are going to go wrong. Things come up in your life. And the other big uh, theme here is that if we recognize that, we shouldn't over obsess about it. You know, we can't stress all every little tiny detail of our taper because that in itself is an additional form of stress that that almost isn't tapering. You know, we have to taper down our stress a little bit too as we lead into a goal race. Do you think that's all fair? Yeah, I think, and, and, and that comes for me from, you know, bitter experience that I think if there's one thing, well, not that there's one thing, but there, one of the things that I would tell my younger self if I could is, you know, don't sweat the details quite as much. You try and do everything right, but it doesn't help to overstress. But the other, and the other big theme that I would say people should just bear in mind is if there's a more, a most common error among runners with tapers, it's that they do too much in the taper because they're worried that they're losing something. So I would say do less than you think you need to. And, um, you know, not to, not to extremes, obviously, but if you're, if you're driven to do, don't be afraid to, to do a full taper, but don't, don't, uh, don't go down the rabbit hole and get too worked up about it. Alex, thanks so much for your expertise and your wisdom built through so many years of, of being such a competitive runner. Uh, is there anything about tapering that we might not have covered that you think we should uh, talk about for our audience today? There's nothing that, uh, you know, I think you did a pretty good job, or the audience did a pretty good job with the, the questions they submitted of, of uh, getting to the big questions. I mean, the, the one thing that's, that people sometimes don't give enough attention to is, is the mental side, but I think we, we covered that well. Yeah, I think maybe maybe talking a little bit more about that and some of the related issues uh, in a future episode of the podcast is warranted. So maybe we'll have a round two sometime in the future, Alex. Sounds great. Thanks, Jason. Take care, Alex. Thank you so much. And there it is. I always have so much fun talking to Alex and hearing about the nuances and shades of gray on these complicated topics. If you haven't yet, Go get his book, Endure. It's one of my favorite reads in all of 2018 when it was published. Our show today is supported by Inside Tracker. Today, more than ever, it's essential that we're making the right decisions to keep ourselves healthy, to help us be resilient, prevent overtraining, and optimize our running so we can get the most from it. So for those of you who want the truth, who want to make a positive change, those of you who have big goals, the answers are likely already within you. Literally, they're inside of you, in your blood and DNA. And that's what Inside Tracker does. They analyze your blood and your DNA biomarkers, along with your lifestyle habits, to help you optimize your body and reach your goals. Inside Tracker's patented system will transform your body's data into knowledge, insights, and a customized action plan of science backed recommendations. I just got my blood drawn earlier today. And I can't wait to get the results. I want to see whether or not I'm running too much, under-recovering, probably not eating the best diet if I'm sleeping enough. These are all very interesting things that the biomarkers in your blood can help you learn. So if you're worried about overtraining or if you're just training really hard right now, this is a great service. And if you're ready to invest in Inside Tracker in yourself right now, they're actually offering their best deal of the year with $200 off the ultimate plan. This is their most comprehensive package. And if you use code GIFT from Strength Run, 
at insidetracker.com, then you will realize those savings. That code is a mouthful. So one more time, it's gift from Strength Run, no spaces, and you'll get $200 off the ultimate plan at insidetracker.com. Thank you again for listening and being part of the Strength Running community. Hit the subscribe button in your podcast player so you see all of our new episodes. And if you're a fan of the show, a review and Apple Music will make my day. Thank you guys so much. Until next time.